Father, I thank you for uh, your scriptures. They're, they're so rich. There is so much to them. Father, we, it's like mining for gold. I pray, Father, as we dig deeply into uh, this passage of Revelation chapter 20, uh, I ask God for clarity of thought. I ask, Father, for clear minds. I ask, Father, for um, a direction in truth. And pray, God, that you would uh, give us an understanding as, as we go through. This is not easy. And so I'm asking you, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, there the implications of this that we're learning uh, truly are vast, especially as we look at the Old Testament, but also the New. And I'm asking you, Lord God, for that reason, please direct us into truth. Please, Lord God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me go ahead and start with verse 1 of chapter 20. I did say that um, the last two weeks, and I've been good to my word, we were not going to look at this passage um, but this is where the concept of a thousand years or a millennium, um, again, in the, the early church, they didn't call themselves millennialists, they called themselves kiliasts, from the Greek word kilia, uh, meaning a thousand. And this is where the whole idea of a thousand year reign of Christ is. So let's start there. And so before today, I just wanted us to look at the other, the rest of the New Testament. What does the rest of the New Testament have to say? Um, and now today, let's look at this, these 10 verses, but we're probably going to only focus on the first half. So chapter 20, verse one, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his right hand, a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is, I agree with the NIV, this is parenthetical. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, referring to the first thousand years mentioned that people came to life. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years were ended, verse seven, I mean, when the thousand years were are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The first thing that I need to ask is this question that's in the text here. Does this passage follow chapter 19 chronologically? Actually, we're going to need to step back and we need to ask that question of the entire book of Revelation. 
Is the book of Revelation meant to be uh, recorded chronologically? And to be fair with this, I'm going to throw out some uh, scripture verses, and I, I believe that we're going to find numerous breaks, and those breaks, I'm going to give you the quote, those breaks are highlighted with things that are well known to take place at the very end of the age called the day of the Lord. Now, if that's the case, then we know that that marks the end of a section. Now, some people would say at the end of that section, then there's like a rewind. I'm not convinced that there's a rewind, as in it goes all the way back to Christ and then marches through history again. My take on it is that the book of Revelation is not concerned about chronology. Not that there are numerous rewinds, though you may have heard me use that term before. Um, I'm more of the opinion that Revelation does not seek to flesh out any kind of chronology. It is one vision after the other, and these visions can be grouped together, and I believe they are. And something, just in way of observation, is that many times there is uh, a section, uh, a vision or several visions, that have to do with what John sees taking place on earth, and then he steps back and he sees something taking place in heaven. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that these come in pairs, something that takes place on earth, something that takes place in heaven, or vice versa, if you will, and that these create each section. Now, when I say each section, I'm going to mention to you a certain chapter, and at the end of that chapter, I'm going to give you a quote that seems to clearly refer to the end of the age. And my question is, why would there be five or six end of the ages referred to if Revelation was meant to be taken chronologically? Do you understand what I'm saying? All right. At the end of chapter, or towards the end of chapter 6, it says, The sky receded like a scroll, and every mountain and island was removed. Now, if we're going to take this literally, then that would clearly mean the destruction of the earth and the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth. Though it doesn't mention the new heavens and the new earth, it clearly mentions the destruction of the earth. The sky recedes like a scroll, and... Every island, uh, every mountain and island was removed, okay? To me, that speaks of the destruction of the earth and therefore the coming of Christ and the end of the age. Question? That's in chapter 6. At the end? Uh, Not at the very end, no. I apologize. I did not write down specific verses um, only because I meant to go through this uh, relatively quickly, because there's a lot of ground I want to cover today. So forgive me if I don't give you exact verses, but that would be, uh, you're going to want to do some research and find, where does, where did Pastor Mike bring out that verse? He says it's there, so it's going to force you to, to study, okay? Anyway. And you guys are good students. At the end, or towards the end of chapter 11, it says, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants. And there's actually several verses, and it's clearly the end of the age. Actually, there's a phrase that says, referring to God, who is and who was. The common phrase in the in Revelation is, who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is to come is not there. And we have to, in being good students, ask, why does he purposely leave that out? Because he has already come. I think is a fair answer. And as you read the passage, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our of of our God and of His Christ. And so, we, we I think we it's fair to say at the end of chapter eleven is clearly the end of the age, and then chapter twelve we actually see the birth of Christ as it moves forward. Okay. At the end of chapters, uh, at the end of chapter fourteen, it says, "And the earth was harvested." Would it not be fair to view this harvest as God's judgment and as God's reward? Um, the parable of the the wheat and the ta- and the, the wheat and the weeds in Matthew thirteen talks about the harvesting angels. Okay. And Jesus actually gives us an interpretation of this parable, and it's clearly the end of the age, and that is the term that Jesus uses for the harvest of the earth. At the end of chapter 16, referring to the Battle of Armageddon that you're going to read for next week, it says this, um, concerning Armageddon, on the great day of God Almighty. We read that in the, the, the day of God in Second Peter chapter 3, Three, and that had to do with the consummation of the ages where the earth is destroyed and the new heaven, and God created the new heavens and the new earth. He called that the day of God. This is the great day of God Almighty. And it continues on a few verses later. It says, every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. That's after the battle of Armageddon. So I'm going to submit to you just based on those four passages that Revelation clearly is not in chronological order. We, If you want to call them rewinds, that's fine. Uh, if you want to just call them uh, pictures of the pouring out of God's wrath, that each section ends with the day of the Lord, the destruction of the earth, etc., judgment, then, yeah, that's fine. That, that's, that's my take on it. I, I truly don't believe that Revelation deals uh, chronologically uh, though others, uh, brilliant minds, take th- take it differently. What I do want to focus on for right now, uh, just a, a few more minutes than the others that I looked at, is the chronology shift or the um, the end of a section that would demonstrate that Revelation is not in chronological order. And that is when we come to the end of chapter 19, verse 10. Chapter 19, verse 11, gives us a picture of Jesus coming on a horse. It's clear that it's Jesus. He's coming with his holy angels, uh, with his saints. He is destroying the beast and the false prophet. This is uh, the coming or the second coming of Christ. But here, I want you to look at this passage in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, And my question is, what is this passage focused on? Look at verse 7 specifically. What is the scenery or the scene that's taking place, that that's unfolding for us in this vision? I'm sorry? A wedding wedding of? The bride of Christ in Christ. Okay, who is the lamb. So this this is the wedding supper of the lamb. Okay? This is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me just walk you through. There's four stages. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly in general terms here with regard to the, from the betrothal period to the wedding in a Jewish, in the Jewish culture. The man would ask the father and mother to enter into a covenant with him 
and the woman that he is would be proposing to, they would sign a document, a a, a pact, a, a covenant, in which at a certain time that he would be able to marry her. He then, after signing this covenant, he would go to his father's house where he has lived thus far, and he would either build a house adjoining his father's house or on his father's property. So he would go away for several months, as much as a year, sometimes two years, but typically within the year, he would build a house, and then he would come to the woman's parents' house, is where she is living. In the meantime, she has gotten herself ready. I forget what the the, um, the the stuff that she has that when he comes, she would grab and take with her. There's a name that's actually given to it. And she would grab that. And when he is approaching the house, he would generally come with his uh, attendants. And as they approach the house, he they would many times sh- give a trumpet call he would shout to her, I'm here to, to take you to myself. And then she would grab her stuff, come to the door, and he would, she would then march with him. Many times this would happen at night, so they would have torches. But they would then go back to his parents' house, and they would have the wedding ceremony followed by this awesome, awesome Jewish celebration and the wedding supper. Um, and then after that would be the consummation of the marriage. So generally speaking, you have the betrothal, you have the man going back, he prepares his home, you then have him retrieving his wife from her parents' house, from where she had been living, and then you have the wedding celebration and supper. Um, my question to you is, where is the bride in this particular passage of Revelation 19? Where is she? In, in this passage of 19, 1 through 10, where is she? Look at verse 1. Where is this scene taking place? In heaven. Okay. It says, for the bride, verse 7, for the bride of the, the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Where is she? She's in heaven. She's not in her parents' home. She's in whose home, so to speak? The bridegroom's father's home. She has already been retrieved for the wedding ceremony and the supper. My question to you, and, and I think this is very a very clear reading of the text. I'm not like twisting anything to make it say what I think I want it to say. I mean, she's clearly in heaven. She's been clothed already. The, the wedding supper of the Lamb is at hand. My question to you then is, why is it that Jesus, in verse 11, comes to the earth? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells me he comes to the earth to do what? To retrieve his bride. That's when the resurrection of the righteous takes place. So, some would say that the rapture has already taken place, 
and the second coming of Christ is at hand. And my question to you then would be, if the bride who is already clothed in her glorious resurrection body is what's being pictured here, we have only part of the bride. If the rapture's taken place, Jesus needs to go to the earth then to retrieve the remainder of his bride, those who came to Christ during the seven-year tribulation. And I'm, I'm speaking as a dispensational premillennialist at this point. Uh, could we close this door, Brian? Thank you. If this is the case, it really steps out of form with the Jewish concept of a betrothal and a retrieval of the bride because the bride, he has to go get the bride twice now. My question then is, if this is about the wedding supper of the lamb and in verse 11 he goes to get the rest of the bride, where do we see him retrieving the rest of his bride? And you're going to have to skim through the verses 11 through 21 very quickly. Here's the answer. Nowhere. It is not John's concern. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's not John's concern at all. And my question is, it's John's concern that the wedding supper of the Lamb is at hand, but the, the whole if if we're holding to a rapture, but the whole bride is not there. Okay, now Christ is going to go and do what? No, it doesn't say about him getting the bride. It talks about him destroying the beast and the false prophet. Totally out of character, does not flow with what you would you would clearly expect because now he's going to go get the rest of the bride so that his entire bride is there for the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the subject of these first 10 verses. But he doesn't do that. Well, I don't want to say he doesn't do that. John does not tell us. So it's not John's concern. But if this is the wedding supper of the Lamb... Verses 1, 11 through 21 should be his concern, but it's not. And why isn't it? Number one, I'm going to suggest to you that the rapture has not taken place beforehand, and now Jesus in verse 11 is going to retrieve the rest of his bride, but rather there is a breakdown of chronology here. There is a rewind, if you will, because when we get to verse 7, the lamb, the bridegroom, has already retrieved his bride. So when we get to verse 11, now John is stepping back into time and he's now going to talk about the bridegroom and his coming to the earth. But his focus is not going to be the retrieval of his bride because he's already talked about that. What is his focus? Now what we need to do is we need to understand why does John give us these pictures because they're not in chronological order. It just really seems messed up. But it only seems messed up if you're wanting to see chronology here. John's purpose is to record themes. Not chronology. Themes. So let me walk you through four themes that unfold for us between chapters 17 and 20. From the beginning of chapter 17, we're introduced to the great harlot. She is sitting on a beast, and we then hear about the beast who once was, now is not, and is to come. We learn about the ten crowns that they represent, ten kings, and so on. 
And what we find is from chapter 17 of the introduction of the great harlot to chapter 19, <coughs> verse 10, that whole section, the focus is the rising up of this great harlot and her destruction. Isn't that weird that in those 10 verses of chapter 19 that focus on the wedding supper of the Lamb, that's the section that actually ends the destruction of the great harlot. Now we know this because look at the very beginning of chapter 19. What does it focus on? He, it says, he has condemned the great prostitute. I'm at verse 2. He has condemned the great prostitute, corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 3, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Uh, so do you, do you see that even here, there is this celebration in heaven of the destruction of the harlot. The destruction of the harlot is in chapter 18. Chapter 19, it's this celebration. They are shouting, church, hallelujah. The great harlot has been destroyed. Her smoke rises forever and ever. And then suddenly, boom, the wedding supper of the lamb. Because here's why. The great harlot's focus was on destroying the saints. Did she succeed? Absolutely not. No, on the contrary, she was destroyed. And who triumphed? Who is now celebrating this great moment of this wedding with the lamb, with her bridegroom? It's the saints. Those who are clothed in fine linen representing the righteous acts of the saints. And so there's a contrast here between the destruction of the harlot and the cell of this wedding supper of the lamb, at the triumph of the church. But I'm going to suggest to you chapters 17, 18, and the beginning of 19 focus on the destruction of the great harlot. Chapter 19, and you can write this down, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21 focus on the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, focus on the destruction of Satan. Chapter 20, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, or excuse me, 11 to the end of the chapter, talk about the destruction of the wicked. That's its focus. I'm not saying that the saints aren't gathered there, I'm just simply saying John's focus is the destruction of the wicked. And it's not the rewards, because those rewards are found in the last two chapters of Revelation. Those are yours and my rewards. So we, we see his focus is not chronology, it's thematic. The destruction of the harlot, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, the destruction of Satan, the destruction of the wicked, and now the rewards of the righteous. Chapters 21 and 22. Some of your Bibles, it's like if you have an NASB, and we're going to now look at chapter 20. Start off with the word then. Then I saw. The Greek word that's used there, and, and honestly throughout Revelation, is the Greek word kai. Kai is one of the most used Greek words in the New Testament, and it simply means and. Okay, there's no chronology involved with the Greek word kai. Um, and I saw, I, I, I haven't counted them, that's probably the most frequently used phrase in all of Revelation. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I, should I keep going? I mean, it, it's everywhere throughout Revelation, and I saw. 
And so when you come to chapter 20, verse 1, again, and I saw. So I would venture to say that John's purpose is not to give us a chronological order so that chapter 19, Christ returns, and then chapter 20, we have the thousand years. So the focus then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, is the destruction of Satan. I'm going to suggest to you, and, and I realized that I did, I, I should have taken uh, two weeks from now the, the lesson, Satan's defeat and our reign. I should have put that before this teaching on the millennium. Because that this is very important. So we may find a little bit of overlap between Satan's defeat at the cross and what I'm going to touch on today. Um, but Satan was defeated at the, at the cross. He is presently being defeated, and the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. It is what scripture tells us. And at the end of the age, here in verse 10 of Revelation 20, he is fully and finally defeated. He was defeated at the cross. He is in the process of defeat, being defeated, and he will be fully and finally defeated in Revelation 20, verse 10, 9 and 10. Okay. Let's look now at chapter 20 and ask this question. Do we interpret these 10 verses literally or symbolically? Those who would hold to a premillennial view, and especially those in the dispensational, but fair enough to say both of them, would say that we should interpret it literally. And my challenge to you is, what tells you this? What tells me that I should interpret chapter 20 as literally as I possibly can? Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Nobody ever, would, regardless of being historic premillennialist, dispensational premillennialist, post-mill or on-mill, interprets Revelation completely literally. Nobody does. I haven't re ever read a book that talks about the beast being a creature on four legs with seven heads, and he looks like a leopard, he looks like a lion, and he looks like a bear. That is, though, what Revelation 13 tells us. Um, nobody does that. You might see that on the front cover of a book, but nobody believes that that's the type of beast that will arise at the end of the age. Why? Because everybody takes that as a symbol. Okay? So not only is the beast a symbol, the red dragon, who is Satan, is a symbol... The woman who's giving birth is not um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, but rather the people of Israel. The seven stars around her head is not there because someone hit her in the head and now she's seeing stars circling around her. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 stars. The stars that the dragon pulls out of the sky are not stars as much as they are angels. And he takes a third of them. The sea that the beast comes out of is not a literal sea. The sea represents something in as much as in Daniel 7, the four beasts come out of the sea. One of those beasts represents Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon at the same time. And Nebuchadnezzar was not born in the sea and come walking on dry land. Obviously, this is a symbol. 
We also see that the great prostitute is not literally a prostitute, but she's called a prostitute because she commits spiritual adultery with the nations of the earth, not literal physical adultery. Um, the heads of the beast, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Even numbers, yes. Um, Do, I had a question about the 12 stars in the head of the beast. If you don't mind, only because I don't want to get into the 12 stars, because I, 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 sorry, but I've, I've got very little time and there's so much that I want to cover. So you can hold that question and let's entertain it after class if you don't mind. Great, thanks, Steve. All right. I'm going to, and, and, and I'm just touching on a few chapters here. We could go through the entire book of Revelation. And it is, and I'm not going to say that the entire book of Revelation is symbolic either. What I am saying is nobody interprets Revelation literally. They interpret it partially literally and partially symbolically. Everybody does. So let's get that off the table. We are not, the question is not, do we, do we, trans, do we understand Revelation 20 literally or symbolically? Everybody translates Revelation both, both ways. The question is, how symbolically? That's the question. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at Revelation 20, the first several verses, and we're going to look at some symbols that are used. And I'm going to suggest to you that they are symbols and that they are not literal. Let's look at this concept of a key. Is it a literal key that he has that unlocks a literal door, or is it a spiritual key? In Matthew 16, when Jesus gives the keys to the king, keys of the kingdom to Peter, does he pull out, you know, this really cool keys to a Corvette and say, hey, buddy, it's yours now? Uh, or, or is it to some mansion that he gives literal keys? Jesus doesn't pull any keys out of his pocket, but he does give them. Peter being representative of the apostles, he does give them the keys to the kingdom. Now, he talks about the gates of hell. Gates would have a key. He's talking about the keys to the kingdom. Keys always unlock doors. And what he is talking about is the kingdom of God coming against the kingdom of darkness and specifically the last enemy that will be defeated, which is death. Okay, so these are the these this these are the gates of Hades that will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church, the kingdom of God. And so this though will be accomplished, the onslaught of the kingdom of darkness will be accomplished with the keys to the kingdom. How does somebody enter the kingdom? What would those keys represent? Anybody? Thoughts? Okay, keep going with that a little bit more. Let's dig into it. What could it, what could it mean? These keys that he's giving to Peter, representative of the apostles, that would open the door to the kingdom of God. Okay, the gospel. The good news coupled with man's faith, but God, we also see in Revelation chapter 1, that, and I'm going to agree with you, Stephen. I think this is the gospel. I'm giving you the gospel, which when it's preached, has the power and the authority to get a hold of the believer and completely change them and usher them into the kingdom of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and the spirit. There is a spiritual transformation that takes place. You don't go into the kingdom of God through a literal door. Okay? So the keys of the kingdom are definitely 
symbolic. The keys that Jesus has in Revelation chapter 1, John sees one like a son of man whose eyes are blazing fire. He's got white hair. Already, I know this may be Jesus, but it's not the literal Jesus that walked on the face of the earth. It's a symbol. And what do we find is on average two, as he describes Jesus, two of the characteristics that John describes Jesus in chapter 1 are used in each of the seven letters. And they set us up to understand the theme of that letter. I'm going to challenge you, if you didn't know that, to go back through those seven letters and and see how those two symbols are used to give us an understanding uh, with regard to the first letter of Ephesians. He sees Jesus with seven stars representing seven angels, that is the seven messengers of the church, walking amongst the seven lampstands. And to the church in Ephesus, he said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And the lampstand John tells us, represents the church. I'm going to remove your church. If you don't repent, you're going to be decimated spiritually and you will no longer exist. And that is, by the way, what happened. And so the the key, Jesus is viewed as having a key and you find what in the letter to Philadelphia, he's holding the key of David. I'm going to suggest to you that they are the same key, except the key that Jesus is holding in chapter one is the key to death and Hades. It is the key to that door that goes to death and Hades. It is the same key that he's holding, but it's now called the key of David. And it says, I open doors that no man can shut and I shut doors. Or actually the Greek word is lock can be interpreted either lock or shut. And I lock or shut doors that no man can open. And he is simply talking about those Jews. If you read the letter. Those Jews who pretend to be Jews but are not, they are in spiritual death in Hades and they have not crossed over into the kingdom of God. And so that door has been shut for them already. I'm going to suggest to you that this key represents authority. It is the key that Jesus holds and he, it, we see the key being used in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 9 that opens the, uh, the mouth or the shaft to the abyss. We're going to get there in, in a little bit. But the key represents authority. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. We find it in things like um, Matthew 16, 19. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the keys of the kingdom. Uh, the key of knowledge, 11, Luke eleven fifty two. Keys of death in Hades I referred to in Revelation 1, 18. Key of David is Revelation 3, 7 that I mentioned. This key then is not a literal key. It is a symbolic key that would represent authority because only Jesus has the authority to open the door or shut the door. Now he can delegate that authority and in chapter 20 he does to an angel. And by the way, this angel is stronger than the devil because it says he seizes the devil And the only way you're going to seize the devil and bind him is because you have greater authority. That's the only way. How do you bind the strong man? By authority. We're actually going to get to that passage in a little bit. All right, so I think we need to realize that this key is not a literal key that opens a literal door. It is a symbol of the authority that this angel now has to exercise over all the power and the authority of the devil. Um, We've already looked at it, but this... Uh, Red dragon is an ancient serpent. These are symbols. He's the devil or Satan, the accuser of the brothers. Okay, that's where we, that's the literal. The fact that he's a dragon, that's a metaphor. The ancient serpent, somewhat of a metaphor going back to Genesis 3. And so 
We now move on. Does he bind the devil with a literal great chain, or is that great chain a symbol? Well, you already know where I'm going to come from on this. There, we, we can actually know this. The scriptures already tell us, outside of Revelation, whether we're supposed to treat this literally or symbolically. Turn with me to Jude, verse 6. And in the book of Jude, Jude is the book that immediately precedes Revelation. And in Jude, verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude. That's why I say I'm not giving you a chapter on this one. It says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. I'm going to suggest to you that we cannot translate these chains or these fetters, the prison fetters, literally because... Can someone do me a favor and see if they can close the nursery doors? Sometimes they leave them open, but they, they need to close those doors. Thank you. Um, these are demons. These are fallen angels. They have been chained up we are told here, bound with chains, with fetters, and they're being held in that state until judgment. We might ask ourselves, wow, I mean, demons? Maybe these are literal chains, and there is a place where they have been literally chained that they cannot leave, and therefore they cannot tempt mankind. Let's investigate this. We're going to look at a passage that we looked at months and months ago, and it's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We come across a word in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that is used only once in Scripture, and it's used here. It's this Greek word, Tartarus. Tartarus. T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. Tartarus. In Greek mythology, and I'm going to encourage you that Peter is not borrowing from Greek mythology here, but it is a word that they would understand for departed spirits, specifically for demons. So Peter now uh, takes this Greek word, he demythologizes it, if you will, and he pours his own definition into it. And here's what it says. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them or consigned them to, what does your version say? Hell. Hell, okay. Hell in the Greek is Gehenna. This is not Gehenna. And you're, we're going to look more at this idea of Gehenna. Uh, nobody is in Gehenna right now. They're either in Hades or in Tartarus, but nobody is in hell right now or Gehenna. But I understand why the translators, and it's very common to translate this word hell um, because of just the, the, the typical mindset of trying to demythologize Tartarus. We're, we're going to see why in just a moment. So, But he sent them or consigned them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons or pits to be held for judgment. It's It literally reads, for if God did not spare sinning angels but consigned them to Tartarus, putting them in pits of gloom, held for judgment. That's how it would literally read. 
My question then is, are there two groups of demons? Because these are clearly demons. They're fallen angels or sinning angels. All sinning angels are demons. Are there two groups? Are there those that are in Tartarus chained up, as Jude tells us, in these gloomy pits reserved for judgment, and then there are those that roam the earth? If there are two groups, I would suggest to you that that group that roams the earth somehow avoided God's judgment. And this passage tells me that no sinning angels avoided God's judgment. That all sinning angels, that is, all demons have been consigned to Tartarus. Now this is confusing, especially when in your version you read the word hell, because hell is a place. Heaven, the throne room of God, is a place. It's not a condition or state or realm. It is a locale. Tartarus, I'm going to suggest to you, is not. Now, if you were to go through the book of Ephesians, now I've done this again, I'm repeating myself from a lesson that I taught several months ago, but I'm just refreshing your memory right now. There is a phrase called the heavenlies. That's how the King James translates, the heavenlies. Some, or, or the heavenly places, the NAV calls it the heavenly realms. It's used five times in Revelation, <coughs> excuse me, five times in Ephesians, <clears throat> and it's treated somewhat uniquely there. Paul does this, I think, purposefully because he wants us to see something, and I believe it's this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. When we come to chapter 6, the fifth and final time that it's used, it's used in this context. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenlies. So the heavenlies are not, is not simply the place called heaven, where Jesus is seated and seated and where we are seated with Christ. That's not what is meant by the heavenlies. That is what is meant by heaven, just not what is meant by the heavenlies. The heavenlies are, is the abode of spirits. Angelic, uh, God himself, demons. This is the abode of the heavenlies. It is not a locale. It is not a specific place. It is a realm. It is the spirit realm as opposed to the human natural realm. And so it fits well in the context where he says our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against humans in this natural order of earth, it is in the spirit realm. It is in the heavenlies. That's where our battle is. But can I suggest to you that those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, we encounter them every day. We don't see them, but we encounter them every day because that's who our struggle, our wrestling matches with. They are the ones that we battle with every day. But they are here in this earth. They are the very ones that are locked up and chained up in Tartarus. We cannot therefore say that Tartarus is hell. We cannot say that it's Hades. We cannot say that it is a special place where demons go to die, so to speak, uh, waiting judgment, um, and are separate from those demons that lurk the earth. They are one and the same. Every fallen angel, every demon is in Tartarus 
as we speak and we encounter them every day. But they are in pits of gloom. They are in spiritual, symbolic chains. Um, they are therefore under judgment awaiting the great day of judgment. And for that reason, they are different than angels. Angels don't have this desire to inhabit humans and control them, do they? No, of course not. But that is the nature of a demon who is enmeshed in sin, in gloomy pits of darkness, in chains reserved for the great day of judgment. That is their natural bent. And so I'm going to suggest to you that Tartarus is not a place, it is a realm. And we encounter them on a daily basis. Okay. I now want us to consider this idea of the abyss. Because Satan has been bound with these symbolic chains by this authority of an angel, and he has now been cast into the abyss. What is the abyss? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, when a demon comes out of a man, and the only way he's going to come out of a man is because he's been cast out by the authority in Jesus' name. He's been cast out. So when a demon comes out of a man, where does he go? Wanders arid places. What is he looking for while he's wandering? Rest. Where does he find this rest? According to verse, I think it's verse 44 tells us. Okay, in the house that he was just cast out of. And that would be a metaphor for the man that he was demonizing. So he's cast out of a man. He wanders in these arid places and he is looking for rest. It's interesting that he, is, he finds this rest, and I'm going to put rest in quotes, because we know that there is no way for a demon to escape Tartarus. Whether he's demonizing someone or wandering the arid places, he is always being held under judgment, in chains, gloomy pits. He is suffering punishment until the day of judgment. We could have read Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that also refers to this punishment. And so he is, he is being punished, but he is seeking a measure of reprieve from this punishment by demonizing or inhabiting a human being. That is what Jesus is telling us in chapter 12, verses 43 and 44. He finds some measure of rest, not complete rest, because he's still in Tartarus. He's still being punished, awaiting for the great day of judgment. But he is finding some measure of relief from that punishment. All right, so at this point, if we could diagram Tartarus, we find, at least at this point, that there are two places within Tartarus. And I want to be careful. I don't mean places, but areas or something. There are the arid places, or NASB calls them waterless places. And then there is the rest that he finds in demonizing a human being. Now let's turn to Luke 8. Chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 8, verse 31. 
Luke 8, 31. In Luke 8, 31, this is the encounter of the gathering demoniac and the demons, hundreds, and I'm going to suggest thousands of demons because his name's Legion, who legions oversee 6,000 Roman soldiers. So there's probably many thousand, possibly as many as 6,000 demons in this man. And they say, please do do not cast us or send us to where? What does it say? The abyss. Do not send us to the abyss. Um, do not send us into the abyss. Now, what is the abyss? It would have to be somewhere in Tartarus. Jesus has already told us when a demon is cast out of a man, he, go, he wanders arid places. And he doesn't say he wanders arid places or he's cast into the abyss, does it? He wanders arid places. If the abyss were a special place, place within Tartarus, that once you're thrown there, you can't get out and you can no longer um, tempt or deceive or accuse, which is Satan and his demon's job, that's their job description, if you will. That's what they're bent on. Uh, stealing, killing, destroying, accusing, tempting, deceiving. If there were a separate place that would be called the abyss that you could throw a demon into so that he could not do any of this, don't you think Jesus would have done this every single time that he cast out a demon? And yet this is the only time, and it doesn't even come out of Jesus' mouth. The words that come out of Jesus' mouth are arid places, not the abyss. This is the only time that the abyss is mentioned. It's mentioned on the lips of a demon. And I would suggest to you that if the abyss were a place that demons could not get out of and tempt, and Jesus would have taught us very clearly somewhere in Scripture. By the way, apostles... When you cast a demon out, always make sure, without exception, that you tell him to go to the abyss. But there's nothing like this in all of Jesus' teachings. I believe, and I firmly believe, that we are left with one conclusion. The abyss is the arid places. You are either in the arid places or the abyss as a demon, or you are demonizing someone. And we're not aware of any other place within Tartarus that a demon could wander. Now let's take this full circle. Uh, and by the way, any questions with regard to the abyss? Or maybe something you see that would be inconsistent with what I've just taught. I'm open to that. Or maybe some confusion like, could you just rewind and what did you just say? Okay. Go ahead, Zach. I guess I'm... So if angels and demons fight, if there's nowhere else to go, they're just out. Like, I just don't understand how there can be a fight if they're immortal and there's nowhere to go or anything like that. Okay, because you're probably thinking of the abyss as a place, and it's not a place, it's a realm. It is for the demons that the angels do not experience, it is a realm of darkness in which their sin has fully captured them um, distorted the way they think, the way they will, um, the way they act. It's painful. It is in this realm 
of Tartarus that the only way to escape that agony would be to demonize somebody. So the apostle praying is angels to be in that place no. too? Because that is a place of judgment. No angel, and it's, and it's not recorded in scripture anyway, anywheres rather, that an angel goes into the abyss. Or at least a, a fallen angels, which are demons, and we obviously, you're not confusing them, I realize that. You, there are the angels, and then there's the fallen angels called demons. They battle one another, just like demons who are wandering every places and are in Tartarus can tempt us and deceive us and accuse us and destroy. Satan can do this as well. All right, there is freedom to do that. The abyss is that place in Tartarus that is separate from inhabiting a human and controlling them. So there is this general desire within a demon to escape the utter agony of the abyss or the arid places that generally define Tartarus and demonize someone because they find some measure of relief in that. They're controlling. And I, I, and I don't describe, the Bible doesn't tell us how they find that, why they find it. It just says that they do. That is what Jesus told us in, in Matthew 12. So they can engage angels in a spiritual battle, but they are in agony in this condition, this, um, this realm, which is not a place called the abyss. So you're suggesting then like almost like three different dimensions and there being a physical dimension, a regular spiritual dimension, and then some kind of other... This is the spiritual dimension. It is part of the spiritual dimension. Just like the, the, heaven, the heavenlies is a dimension. It's not a place. Because demons inhabit the heavenlies or the spirit realm and angels and Jesus himself are in the heavenlies. That's, that's what, when you do that study of the five times... The, the heavenlies are used in at Ephesians. That's what you find. Both demons and angels and Jesus himself and the throne of God are in the heavenlies. All right? Not heaven, but the heavenlies. And that's why the NIV translates it spirit or, or the heavenly realms rather than places like the King James because it's not a place. It's a realm. It's a spirit world, if you will. And it's separate from the physical world. But for demons, they have been consigned to this condition of utter torture, and there's some measure of restriction on them that I'm sure is far more than what the Bible teaches, but we've been given this much, and that's all that we can work with. And let me move on, because um, I'm looking at the time here. As we go back now to Revelation chapter 3, if Satan is locked up in the abyss and he cannot get out for a thousand years... Draw some conclusions of that. What does that mean? Okay, fair enough. He might be there now because the abyss is, is there right now. Okay, but what else? If he's in the abyss, where is he not? In somebody. Well, yeah, he's not in hell, but nobody's in hell. So, okay, fair enough though. But he cannot demonize because as far as what we have been shown from Scripture, and it's limited when it comes to demonology and angelology, just understand that. But with what we have, and that's all that we can use to understand any passage of Scripture, what Scripture has already revealed to us, okay? That is that the abyss is part of Tartarus, 
And you can go from the abyss to the demonizing somebody. But I'm going to say in order to do that, you have to have been given authority to move from the abyss or the arid places and demonize someone. And I would suggest specifically the authority of someone's sin or whatever opens the door for Satan or his demons to demonize you. You give or surrender your authority. This is why an angel, a fallen angel, called a fallen star, in Revelation 9, takes a key representing authority and unlocks the shaft to the abyss. What comes out of the abyss, it's locusts. Now, when we, I'm not going to repeat what I taught several months ago, but when those locusts come out, they sting like scorpions. They can never kill. By the way, in demonization, we never read of anyone being killed by being demonized, though the demon certainly tries. The locusts try to kill humans, but they cannot. They sting like scorpions. You remember the Israeli death stalker, also called the yellow Palestine scorpion. Those are among the most, there's about 1,500 species of scorpions. They're among the most poisonous of all scorpions. If anyone understands the poison and the uh, the effects of the poison of a scorpion, it would be John, because he grew up in Palestine, and he's, he, no longer, he, he certainly encountered the Israeli death stalker or an ancestor of the Israeli death stalker. Uh, he understands poisonous scorpions. And as we looked, the symptoms of uh, a scorpion bite that is potent like the Israeli death stalker, your muscles go rigid, you foam at the mouth, and just cut into the chase, you elicit symptoms, outward symptoms of demonization that we read about in the Gospels anyway. And I'm going to suggest to you that these locusts are demons. When they come out of the abyss, they demonize. And that is how they torment the inhabitants of the earth. Okay? All right. Um, and so we looked at Revelation 9 kind of as a test. If this is true, when you come out of the abyss, you demonize Revelation 9 is our case in point. That is, I believe, what happens. And you can study that on your own. If you come to a different conclusion, that's that's fine with me. But I, as I look at that and all the nuances of it, to me, that screams demonization. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to you. So if Satan or any demon, but in this case, Revelation 20, Satan is locked in the abyss, that tells me he cannot demonize. Let me ask you this. In Revelation 13, when the dragon gives his power, authority, and throne to the beast, what's really happening? The dragon, who is the devil, gives his power, authority, and throne to the beast. How would he do that? How would he transfer this authority apart from, here's my suggestion, demonizing the beast? Or the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the end time beast. Is he related to the Antichrist? Again, chapter 13 is not in, Revelation is not in chronological order. Chapter 20, I'm going to suggest to you the thousand years, which is a thousand, hundred, ten, many times is used symbolically in scripture, and, and we could go through a number of things, and numer the numbers used in Revelation, I'm not going to say are exclusively symbolic, but many of them are symbolic. Um, 
we could uh, we could look at 666. Is 666 really a number that's going to be stamped on people's forehead and on their fore and on their arms? Then we, if we say yes, then we're going to have to say that all of us have the name of God on our forehead. Okay, and I, I don't see a name on on your forehead, Mike, but I know you're a follower of Christ. So I'm going to suggest that this this the name of the beast. Even as the name of God is on our forehead, the name of the beast is on the forehead of all of those that have sought to rebel against God and worship the devil or the beast. Okay, and it's it's symbolic. Um, it would not be literal. Uh, you could look at the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, twelve thousand stadia, which is fourteen hundred miles by fourteen hundred miles by fourteen hundred miles. If you go fourteen hundred miles up into our atmosphere, and I realize this is the new earth, but fourteen hundred miles straight up in the sky takes you up into outer space. You would become a satellite at that point. All right. Three hundred miles is where the first satellites, as I recall, are. Um, and this is fourteen hundred miles, which is about the average height of where satellites are. There's some below, there's some above. In fact some are much higher than that. Um, as much as, what, 22,000 miles above the Earth. So, I'm going to suggest to you, John is clearly using figurative numbers here when he's describing the New Jerusalem. Because God is not going to build a city that's 1,400 miles into the air. We would step back and we would say, we are in outer space at that point. If you've ever been to um, Mile High Stadium, where the Denver Broncos play... Um, if you're not used to that height and you exercise, it's hard. I understand teams, when they play in that stadium, they try to get there a little bit early to adjust to the height and acclimate to that, that, um, the lesser amount of oxygen that's at that height. Anyway, I'm going to suggest to you that the 1400 miles describing the New Jerusalem is symbolic because... The New Jerusalem is symbolic of the church anyway. The Holy of Holies is 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. A thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. Um, the angels are 10,000 times 10,000. Um, the phrase in Daniel 120, 10 times better. Was, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel exactly 10 times better? No, it's a figurative number to, to say they were a lot better. I'm going to suggest to you that a thousand is simply meaning not a literal thousand years, but rather a long time, a large number of years. Okay, so we have this idea, and, and I really need to close with this, because the problem that we immediately encounter is if Satan is cast into the abyss, meaning that he cannot demonize, that would mean that before he was cast into the abyss, that he could... And after he's released from the abyss, he can. The beast is said to be who once was, this is from John's perspective, who once was before the cross, now is not, but will yet come. Okay, that's how Revelation describes the beast. Who is this beast? He once was, now is not, and is yet to come. So the beast is not just a future man of lawlessness. We saw him in the Old Testament. I believe you saw him in Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom of Babylon. You saw him in Persia. You saw him in Greece. And specifically, the prince of Greece or ruler of Greece was controlling um, the, the king of, of Greece. 
but these were world ruling or world ruling world how can i say it world ruling demons ephesians chapter 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood against the rulers the authorities the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and the the world rulers of this darkness i actually switched the last two around world rulers of this darkness spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms world rulers of darkness there are demons who high, who hold a high rank in the in the realm of the heavenlies and the darkness where the demons in tartarus and they are they control world rulers they themselves are world rulers daniel 10 says that the angel sent to daniel took him 21 days encountered the ruler of persia and the ruler of greece these were demons he didn't encounter the literal ruler but a spirit ruler who would be a demon, and I can suggest to you that these were controlling these rule, these physical rulers, these kings of Persia and Greece. And they would be the beast. Actually, when you read Revelation 13, how is the beast described? He's described exactly as the lion that represents, that represents Babylon, the bear that represents um, the, uh, the Persian kingdom, and the leopard, which represents the kingdom of Greece. That is how the beast is described. He is like a lion and like a bear and like a, a leopard. And they perp, that takes us back to Revelation, excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. There was one more called the Roman Empire, but John is living in the Roman Empire and he says the beast now is not. Okay, so the beast demonized those four, those three kingdoms and rulers, and he will demonize a future. But right now he cannot, and I, and, and I need to take at least 10 minutes, maybe a little bit more, because we need to understand if he's in the abyss and he's bound, he can't deceive the nations. That's probably where most people immediately start grinding the gears when it comes to a millennial interpretation, which is where I'm coming from, of Revelation 20. How is it that Satan cannot deceive the nations? What does it say in First Peter chapter 5? Verse 9 says, um, Be watchful and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You mean he's in the abyss right now? But then he's able to prowl around like a roaring lion. Once you understand the concept of the abyss, that's not a problem, is it? They can engage in spiritual warfare with demon, with angels while they're in the abyss or Tartarus. They can engage in temptation and accusation and destruction and so on while they are in Tartarus. Okay? And so it should not be any difficulty for us understanding that Satan is in the abyss and he is limited in his scope of authority as a result, but he cannot deceive the nations. So what does that mean? He cannot deceive, but this is he cannot deceive the nations. Um, we need to understand this concept of the nations. Notice what it does not say. It does not say... One second here. Okay. It does not say deceive the people of the world. It does not say, or peoples. It does not say deceive the inhabitants of the earth. 
It does not say deceive tribes. It does not say deceive languages. All four of those are commonly used in Revelation. Some to individuals, some to small groups. But the nations is another phrase that's used in Revelation, and that's what's used here. So John is not coining a term, the nations. John understands what the nations are and what he is trying to get at. And he does not mean individuals. He means entities, groups called nations. Notice it does not say deceive nations. That for a thousand years he cannot deceive nations. It says deceive the nations. It does not say that he cannot deceive some nations. It does not say that he cannot deceive any nations. It says he cannot deceive the nations. Let me just give you an example to kind of bring this home a bit, an illustration. If I, there's about 200, give or take, depending on who you ask, 200 nations in the world today. If there was a, a man who wanted to conquer the world and he managed to conquer three nations before he died, would you say that he conquered the nations? No. No. What if he, dis what if he captured 150 nations? Yeah. Would you be tempted to say, yeah, he did conquer the nations? We might be a little bit divided on this, but I ventured, I, I personally would say, yeah, he did conquer the nations. He didn't conquer all of them, but pretty close. He conquered the majority of them. All right, but we, if he conquered only, my point is, if he conquered only a few nations, we would not say he conquered the nations. If I'm going to say that Satan de deceived or deceives the nations, then that means he is going to deceive more than just a handful of nations or a few nations or a number of nations. It's going to be somewhere pressing the majority or all the nations. Because that's what that phrase means. And as you go through the book of Revelation, we realize that this idea of nations are groups, not individual people, that the nations means many, as in most or all the nations, and that it does not mean a few nations. Right now, Satan is deceiving a few nations, but he is not deceiving all the nations. I would suggest to you, let's put this to the test. I believe Satan is in the abyss right now, and he cannot deceive the nations. But before the inauguration of the kingdom of God with the ministry of Jesus on earth, he did, as the beast, he did deceive the nations. He did it through Babylon. He did it through Assyria. He did it through um, the Persian Empire. For the authors of scripture, that would be the majority of nations that those kingdoms conquered. I think it would be fair to say, and actually when describing Babylon in, I believe it's Ezekiel, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, um, he did. It does talk about those people groups that are a part of the the uh, armies of Nebuchadnezzar. He calls them the nations. So this question, the, the uh, if, if we were to look at Revelation twenty verse eight, I believe it clarifies this concept of deceiving the nations. Number one, in verse 8, by the way, it, it says, uh, after the thousand years are over, he's released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Two things, the extent and the intent. The extent of the deception of the nations is to the ends of the earth. The four corners. 
All right? So this idea of deceiving the nations is not just one or two here, like Islamic nations. They're totally deceived. But Satan is not, that, that is not what this passage is saying, that he's gonna, he's not gonna be able to deceive some nations. It says the nations. And now when we get to verse 8, when he's released, what does he do? He deceives the nations to the four, unto the four corners of the earth. That's the extent of this deception that Satan brings when he is released from the abyss. Number two, the intent. The intent of Satan when he is released is to gather the nations to make battle or war against the saints. The extent and the intent. So what does it mean to deceive the nations? It means to deceive the nations to the ends of the earth and to deceive the nations to gather them for battle. Okay? And I think both of those would fit well with regard to the beast before the, uh, before, um, the, the ministry of Jesus, the inauguration of the kingdom. And I, and I want to, I want to wrap this up and I, and I probably have 10 more minutes with this and I apologize. But I do, I, I need us to ask this question. What does it mean and when was Satan bound? When was Satan bound? And I don't want to just rattle off my personal opinion. I, I could care less about my personal opinion. I, I want my opinion to be based on Scripture. And, and so I, I, I'm going to do the fairest job that I can with regard to what it means for Satan to be bound. So go with me now to Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Matthew 12 verses 28 and 29, and we're going to conclude with this. I did say I wanted to get at least the first three verses done, and I think I'm going to be good to my word on that. But Matthew chapter 12. Jesus just healed a man. He's Matthew says he's healed. Luke says a demon was cast out of him. The focus now is Jesus cast a demon out. And he's Beelzebub, and that's where he's getting this authority to cast the demons out. And Jesus says, really? Um, I don't know what that sounds like in Aramaic, though. But honestly, though, Jesus says, are you serious? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A city divided itself against itself cannot stand. A house, an oikia, divided against itself cannot stand. And by the way, oikia is used here for house. And when the demon comes out of a man, he goes into a house, and that's oikos. And that's important here because we come across this word house again in the passage that we read. And that would be verse 28 and 29. Let's look at this. And it says, verse 28, But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, as opposed to Beelzebub, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, if... Demons are being cast out. What does that tell us? What is here? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's on the scene. At least it's beginning to be unfolded. At least that. So with that in mind, that the demons who are of the kingdom of darkness are being cast out by the authority of Christ, that, Jesus says, that tells us that God's kingdom has come. God's power and authority in the kingdom of God is now confronting the kingdom of darkness, and that's why the demons are being cast out. Okay, let's look at verse 29. It says, 
Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up or binds the strong man? Then he can rob his house. That word tie up, bind, is the same Greek word that's found in Revelation, bound, safe. Tied him up. Okay. Let's look at this. The common interpretation among charismatics, and I find myself in that movement, at least for the most part, um, has been that if you're going to cast a demon out, you have to bind the demon that's in him and then cast him out. I'm going to suggest to you that is not what Jesus is teaching here. The house is seen as the man that the strong man is in and owns. That's the oikos of verse 43 and 44. Whichever verse it is, I'm, uh, 43. Excuse me, 44. That's oikos. The Greek word here is oikia. That's the word that was just used with regard to the kingdom, a kingdom divided against itself. A city or a oikia divided against itself cannot stand. When he uses this concept of a kingdom, a city, and a house, he is talking about Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom, if it's divided against itself, cannot stand. Satan's city, Satan's house, divided against itself, cannot stand. Satan's oikia, if it's divided, it can't stand. Who then, or what then, is the... Strong man's house, oikia, in verse 29. What is it? Okay, his kingdom, yes. His people, his kingdom, okay. So Satan's kingdom is this oikia that is being robbed or being set up to be robbed. Who would the strong man be? Satan himself. It's his kingdom, it's his house, his oikia. All right. If he is, if Satan is being bound, then what is going to be pillaged? What would the possessions be that are being carted off? Lost. Think about it. exactly. It's the lost. So if Satan is being bound, tied up, and his the possessions of his kingdom are being pilfered, those possessions are his people that are under his control, under his thumb, the lost, the unbelievers. We must first bind Satan. When we bind Satan, then people can get saved. Let's look at, what is the very first word in verse 29 that you have there? What word is it? Or. Um, my version says, or again. The word again is not in the Greek, but is to be understood, and here's why. This is not an either or, that's not how he's using the word or here. He's saying demons are being cast out. Therefore, the kingdom of God has come. Or, let me put it to you another way. Then he gives us verse 29. So or means, or let me put it to you another way. Let me describe it in a different way to you. And I'm going to use an illustration. This is what he's saying. What did he say in verse 29? Satan is overcome because the kingdom of God is here. So he must be saying that in verse 29. What is the kingdom of God? I don't necessarily know if we see it here, but it does act against the, the strong man and it binds him. Okay? When the kingdom of God confronts the house of Satan and binds up the strong man, then the lost 
can be emptied of Satan's kingdom. So, in essence, let me find my place here. Satan is bound so that his kingdom may be plundered and the lost rescued. For the gospel of a kingdom to be effective, Satan must be bound. Remember, the entrance into the kingdom of God is only possible by the cross and our response to the cross, namely faith in Jesus, John 3. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so we have to then ask the question, when was Satan bound? So that the kingdom of God is here, Satan is bound, and people, when they hear the gospel, can be saved. When did that take place? Okay, I, I would venture to say it was at the inauguration of the kingdom, climaxed in the death and resurrection, and we could even throw Pentecost as the outpouring of the Spirit in the in in the the in God's plans. Okay, that time period is when Satan, according to Matthew twenty nine, uh, excuse me, twelve twenty nine, had to be bound. Let's test that. Does any other scripture bear that out? Turn with me to John chapter 12, verse 31. Look at my time. Two minutes. <clears throat> John 12, 31. Um, halfway through 31, now the prince of this world... Excuse me, let me just back up to uh, verse 30. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. I'm not going to get into why he says that, but now he says in verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, Jesus is, this is right before Passover, when the Passion Week, when Jesus is crucified at the end. Now the prince of this world, who's the prince of this world? Satan. Satan. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That, that's the ekbalo. That's cast out, like you cast out a demon, okay? Satan is going to be cast out. He's going to be cast outside. He's going to be cast out outside. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Satan will be cast out, but I am going to draw all men unto myself. When will that casting out of Satan and the drawing of all men take place. When will it happen? At? When I am lifted up. When was Jesus lifted up? On the cross. He was lifted up. He says in verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. With the inauguration of the kingdom, I would say the very specific point of the binding or the casting out of Satan would be the cross. But in all fairness, it's in the context of the kingdom of God assaulting the kingdom of darkness. The only way for people to be led out of the kingdom of darkness is for Satan to be tied up, to be bound. Now we go back to Revelation. Satan is bound for a thousand years. He was bound at the inauguration, specifically the cross, but the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And he's being bound throughout the church age, that thousand years. We understand thousand to mean simply a very long time. He is in the abyss. He cannot demonize, but he can still deceive. He just can't deceive the nations to the extent of the ends of the earth with the purpose, the intent, as it says in Revelation 20, verse 8, to gather the nations together to make war against the saints. And this is a picture, by the way, that the beast does. Whenever you see the beast comes on the scene, his, his purpose is to, get, is to win people to himself 
and to make war against the saints. Wherever you read about the beast, it talks about how people worship him and he makes war against the saints. I'm going to suggest to you that this destruction of Satan in Revelation 20 takes place at Armageddon at the end of the age. It's because he's demonizing the beast. He gathers the, the beast through the demonization of, of Satan himself. He is able to deceive the nations and they make war against the saints. Fire comes from heaven. We'll look at that next week though. And so when was Satan bound? He was bound at the inauguration of the kingdom, specifically at the cross where Satan was cast out. He was bound and he must be in order to pillage his house and save the lost. Okay. Now, the reason why I suggested that two weeks from now when we talk about Satan's defeat in our reign is there's more scripture verses because in, in Luke chapter 11, it actually <laughs> says that his armor, the strong man's armor, is taken from him. And Colossians 2.15 says, um, someone help me start it off. Um, uh, Colossians 2.15. It, um, it talks about how he disarmed when he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public display of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When was Satan's armor taken from him? At the cross. The demons as well. But the demons can demonize. They're still free to demonize. It is Satan that's the focus here. And he cannot until he's released at the end of the church age, this age, in which it appears to me in going through Revelation, he demonizes the beast or the man of lawlessness who then deceives the nations and his purpose is in deceiving the nations to get them to follow and worship him and make war against the church. And then, of course, Christ comes back and wipes out the beast and the false prophet, etc. Question. sure seems like we're getting close with the dominance of Islam and the attacks on Christianity. Um, I'm certainly not going to disagree with that. If we were to uh, rewind several hundred years with the onslaught of Islam on into Europe, though, we I, I think we would probably say the onslaught of Islam was just as great, if not greater, then. So I, I want to be careful that I don't say we're now in the last of the last days or the last days of the last days because uh, look around it the onslaught of Islam, but I think it's a good point. We're, we're going to find this, and it may be that we are in that time in which the, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and he, is, he ends up getting destroyed, and Christ comes back. Um, it may be. It may be. But there have been generations that have lived before us that have seen uh, such persecution. It is true, though, that we do live in a day in which there is more. there are more Christians dying in our generation and, and this is where I've heard, then all generations in the past put together. Um, that's To me, that's an amazing statistic. But you read on the internet, uh, depending on whose newsletter you get, about Christians dying all over, especially in the Middle East. And now in our country, they're coming out against Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me close in prayer.
Father, I want to thank you that our adversary, the devil, has been defeated at the cross. He's been bound so that his kingdom can be pillaged and the lost rescued. That is a phenomenal teaching, Lord God. And I am just asking, Father, right now is the time for us to go and seek to rescue the lost. And I'm asking you, God, whether we're in a workplace, whether we're walking neighborhoods, going door to door, or whether we're in the marketplace, wherever we're at, God, that we would be zealous and we would realize, God, now is the time the harvest is ripe. We need to sow the seeds and cast them and seek to rescue the lost and pillage the strong man's house and see his possessions stolen and brought now into the kingdom of God. And I'm just asking you, Father, in boldness, empower us. Allow us to walk in that authority of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.